Welcome to the first episode of Woodsboro Happy Hour. I am your host, Ellie Quinn. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the following films. Hunter Hunter, Sputnik, Rent-A-Pal, The Wretched, The Last Exorcism, Centigrade, Kindred, The Fanatic, Body, and The Mortuary Connection. Ooh, 10 films. First up, Hunter Hunter. In the film, Joseph and his family live in the remote wilderness as fur trappers, but their tranquility starts to be threatened when they think they are being hunted by the return of a rogue wolf, and Joseph leaves them behind to track it. I learned of this film through Devin Sawa's social media, which is so wholesome. I'm so glad that I followed two of my 90s heartthrobs, Devin and Matthew Lillard, and their feeds are so validating and not at all problematic. So I did a quick glance at IMDb after seeing Devin post about it and thinking it was a low-budget revenant, but thankfully finding that it was 60% shorter. I went to run it on Prime, and it had an entirely different description, but I continued in blind, no trailers, no reviews, only having seen what Sawa shared about the film. Really not sure how I missed this one, but wow, I'm really glad I knew nothing about it. No, this isn't revolutionary for the thriller genre or the horror genre, but this independent really nails it from the acting to the score to the simple script to the direction. The film speeds up and slows down masterfully, captivating me, and it really balanced the claustrophobia and isolation of the cabin against the vastness of the woods. Devin Sawa portrays his character Joseph, riddled with determination, obvious trauma, and complacency with his off-the-grid survivalism. Camille Sullivan as Anne is a beautifully haunting portrayal of a broken woman yearning for more for her daughter, but worn down by the constant battle to survive when choices could be so much easier. The film really starts with Joseph as our protagonist, then shifts to Anne, her journey of not being heard as a woman, with a husband that placates and conceals from her, and finding law enforcement to be completely indifferent. Wow, never experienced that before as a woman. I really didn't find myself villainizing Joseph and his choices because he really stood in his convictions and making the choices he felt best to protect and provide for his family. You can remove yourself from society and people, but that doesn't mean they will leave you alone. I find that every day in my life. As much as I try to remove myself from society and people, they're just still always there. Spoiler alert, fast forward five seconds. So the wolf is a red herring. And that was a super captivating approach for me because the wolf is still a viable threat, but manageable comparatively. Spoiler alert over. I can understand Joseph's choice to conceal the scene he finds from his already terrified wife to avoid law enforcement because he has to protect his homestead and his family. He just severely underestimated the predator he was hunting. So I read some reviews and some complaints where it was too short, rushed at times, but I felt the pace to be very intentional at all times. I loved it, but it left me satisfied completely with the 93-minute runtime. I also saw that there were complaints about the missing backstory, and to me, a more effective film makes me ask questions and intrigues me for motives with the great acting self the who, what, when, where, how without needing to verbalize the why. And I think this film did all of that well. I had to share this tweet that Devin Sawa made about the film because 
this is all I'm gonna say in reference to the ending. So Sawa tweeted, I think one of the reasons Hunter Hunter worked so well was that the entire cast was okay with the director's vision of that ending. No one said nothing. We just got to set, ordered our breakfast burritos, and went about our days like a bunch of psychos. You can really feel that. You can feel the people coming together to collaborate truly and wholly. It just, it showed. Atmospherically, this film really demonstrates the cruelty of nature, nature itself, and human nature. There's just as much carnage in our modern society from capitalism as there is in the family's need to survive. Sullivan's journey in the final chapter is masterfully acted, stepping up from the dominant head of household after having been the domesticated submissive, setting to kill for survival, crying through killing to eat, breaking under a loss, and having a breakthrough, making a calculated response that was unfortunately underestimating of what she was hunting, trying to again overcome to survive, killing to survive, snapping under a devastated loss, which unseen made it so much more unsettling for me. My imagination is a motherfucker. If I could write and or direct, I, I, I know I would terrify people with what is in my head. I digress. And then Sullivan finally killing for retribution, and you see all of her emotions so raw in front of you. I do have to bring up Nick Stahl as well. He nailed the landing with an eerie, questionable redness. The twist is obvious to the viewer, yes, because of all we know, but Sullivan and Stahl really take us on a journey. Yeah. I rented this movie a four out of five. Yeah. I started my day with it and I was like, well, I really don't know where I'm going to go from here because I'm awake. So next up, I watched Sputnik because I had a lot of catching up to do with 2020 films. I watched so many things and yet there's still so many things to watch. Sputnik is set at the height of the Cold War and is about a Soviet spacecraft crash landing after a mission gone awry, leaving the commander as its only survival. After a renowned Russian psychologist is brought in to evaluate the commander's mental state, it becomes clear that something dangerous may have come back to Earth with him. I had been really, really excited to watch this film and just never got around to it. I have to say with the budget only being around two and a half million, they nailed the big budget feel. I don't know what this would have been with a better script though for me. It was tense and claustrophobic in setting. I could have used more into the paranoia of the Cold War era, but at the surface level, it was enjoyable. Sci-fi thriller, even though it spends more time as a character study. So that's where it lost some points for me, because that just wasn't the type of film that I signed up for. Oksana Akashana signs as this film's Ripley. She really conveys her trauma and ethics. There's no way around avoiding any comparisons of this film to Alien, period, and to subject. Alien is by far one of my top 10 favorite films of all time. Anytime you give me an Alien film set in the Cold War era, you're gonna get a comparison. I thought this film had a really interesting take on the symbiote. Spoiler alert, it bursts from the mouth as vomit almost, with the host no more effective than a tickle in the throat. Spoiler alert over. Authorities wish to sever the alien's connection with the host, trying inhumane means to harness the powers. I thought the film examined the demons within Tatiana parallel to the parasite inside Constant Well. 
I would classify this as a drama film with a splash of creature future because at the heart is Tatiana's story, which includes a relationship with Constantine, her search for the truth, her aim to do the right thing, even if it may be wrong. I gave this film a two and a half, and I think I might have been harsh on it, but I really wanted so much more, and I don't know specifically what I needed more of. Maybe I felt I got too much backstory. I don't know. Then I moved on another 2020 must-watch, Rent-A-Pal. I was really excited about this one. Rent-A-Pal is set in 1990 and is about a lonely bachelor named David as he searches for an escape from the day-to-day drudgery of caring for his aging mother. While seeking a partner through video dating service, he discovers a strange VHS tape called Rent-A-Pal. Hosted by the charming and charismatic Andy, the tape offers him much-needed company, compassion, and friendship, but Andy's friendship comes at a cost, and David desperately struggles to afford the price of admission. So, I have things to say about this film that may be unpopular, and I may be akin to a social justice warrior for feeling this way, but I really don't care. But before I get to that, I'm just going to kind of work through. So, the 80s technology thrillers and even 90s are far from new, but definitely this film was a nice throwback to all the films that challenge the acceptance of technology into our homes and lives. I personally can be pretty sketched out about technology, she says, as she's recording a podcast for people to listen to on their mobile devices and other electronic devices through the airwaves and technology things. But I know it's a necessary evil doesn't mean that I am like not careful and skeptical of it like but knowing that (laughs) that's how I feel stuff like this kind of already I'm just like yep I buy it so what really sold this movie for me are Brian Landis Falcons and Will Wheaton Falcons who plays David just never embodies the stereotypical lives in his mom's basement guy he can be endearing he has depth with his pain and loneliness but I was just very aware that he just had like the slight simmer of anger going on there. Wheaton as Andy is a twisted R-rated Mr. Rogers with that grin that you just want to smack off of his face. So David turns to corrupting technology for the connection he so longs for, but when given an actual chance for a real connection, you can tell his simmer of anger is starting to bubble towards a, like, maybe just, like, a little, little bit of a boil. You know, it's an overdone moral. It's no substitute for human connection, which I know in pandemic times, we can all, all relate to that. For me, one of the reasons that I'm, like, about the film is the horror for me was in the reality of situations like this. It's heartbreaking to watch David going through the motions of being fine with his Latin life, going further and further away from society, giving everything to someone who no longer knows him and who used to abuse him. Just a full pot of layered resentments and trauma waiting to spill over once that boil sets in. I felt bad for both David and his mom. Life is hard and unrelenting while the world just is not kind. David has a life of mundane tasks and isolation, which is maddening for anyone. And, you know, David manifests this relationship with Andy while Andy is nothing more 
than an actor on a VHS, and he's able to see that. So, yeah, I'm, I felt it a little like what I like to call emotional torture porn. I am not a fan of that genre. I, maybe I just don't like to feel my feelings, and I'll own that, but I just felt icky. That doesn't mean that it wasn't a good or great movie, but for me, it's not my jam. The script and direction does really match pitch with the acting, so it was very effective, hence why I felt icky. But that's why I had to give it, for me, a two and a half of five. And I could see on Letterboxd, it did trend higher than that, so I wasn't trying to be scathing. It was a well-done film, just ooh, preferentially not for me. Another 2020 gem on many must-watch list was The Wretched. The Wretched follows a rebellious teenage boy struggling with his parents' imminent divorce as he encounters a terrifying evil after his next-door neighbor becomes possessed by an ancient witch that feasts on children. I found this to be a very interesting take on the witch. It was almost like a rare window meets creature feature for me. It was good, but it could have used some more clarity. The witch has powers of possession, mind control, amnesia, but the powers fluctuate from case to case, and maybe that's based on the vessel that the witch is possessing. I don't know. They're, the script could have used some polish for me, and the acting was forgettable, but the concept, cinematography, and direction made it memorable. I would definitely rewatch this film again. Nothing is ever explained, and I am a fan of open-ended situations, but I cannot wade through some of the jumble to even know what questions to ask myself. It's definitely a film I enjoyed for the promise of it, but I wanted more for it structurally. I did give it a 3 of 5, which I know I'm a little bit more scathing on The Wretched than I was on Rent-A-Pal, but I will never watch Rent-A-Pal again where I could watch The Wretched again. Uh, already. And speaking of rewatches, I'm going to make sure I always do a rewatch a week. And this film just happened to be on. It's the 2010 Last Exorcism. So I buckled in. So for those of you who may not have seen The Last Exorcism or need a refresh, after years of performing exorcisms and taking believers' money, Reverend Marcus travels to rural Louisiana with a film crew so he can dispel what he believes is the myth of demonic possession. The dynamic Reverend is certain that this will be another routine quote-unquote exorcism on a disturbed religious fanatic, but instead comes upon a bloodstoke family farm and a true evil he would have never thought imaginable. I love this movie. It's like The Exorcist meets Blair Witch presented as a fake documentary. It gives a great juxtaposition of religious doubt and religious extremism. It's a smartly acted cast with a clever script that really explored upon the ambiguity of the characters. Patrick Fabian as Reverend Marcus soars as a morally ambivalent man of abandoned faith in the pursuit of wealth. Kind of relatable. Um, but I was never a woman of faith, so I guess I couldn't have abandoned it. Ashley Bell really nails the creepy innocence of her character now. The film works as a believable documentary and as an adorable horror film. I think the film presents everything as kind of 
neutral as possible. So you never really know if Nell's issues are demonic possession or a psychological form of grief over her mom's death and trauma from a repressed rape. I'm not going to give a spoiler alone on that one because that movie is 11 years old. So if you have not watched it, yeah, sorry. But also, yeah, I... So, the film definitely has a very open-ended ending, which I am a sucker for, like, please leave me jaw fully fucking open, mad about it, just leave me hanging so I have to leave and let my mind spiral and wonder and feel crazy and obsess and watch it over and over again. Because you've got the non-human pregnancy, the town pastor, Satan worshiper, and the whole congregation who follows him. So for me, I was left wondering, is that why Nell's father had a falling out with the congregation? Did Reverend Marcus find his faith again so God will help him? Or did he forsake him for straying away? Will Nell survive? What does the sacrifice of the child initiate? The film holds such a a steady pace throughout that when you get to the fast-paced ending, it's pretty jarring and even more head-spinning. I know when I saw this film in theaters, I was like, what the fuck? And I didn't catch everything. Then when I came out and I bought it on DVD and rewound it and rewatched it and slowed it down, I was still very much, wow, that's a lot, but it's a lot to take in in a short amount of time. So kudos on them for that. I gave the film a three and a half out of five. It's a pretty, pretty, pretty great little film. Next up, I went for another 2020. I don't think this was a messy. I think this was just something that I was like, oh, this came out. And I added it to a queue. And that was a choice. Let me just say, buckle in, because I have not nice things to say about this set. So I watched Centigrade. If you haven't heard of it, cool. You can fast forward through this section. If you have heard of it or you just want to listen to me be really petty and judgmental, here we go. So Centigrade is based on chilling true events. Per usual, that was mildly, probably more than mildly exaggerated. It it was a thing that happened, but not in this way did it happen. A young American couple travel to the Arctic mountains of Norway. After pulling over during a snowstorm, they wake up trapped in their SUV, bearing under layers of snow and ice. So, admittedly, I am claustrophobic. It was a mild thing, and it's kind of gotten worse over time with age. And it's not, you know, I still would probably say it's a mild thing, but I'm always going to be the one to pick up in a claustrophobic moment in a film forever and always. So the film starts jumping right in with the husband, Matt, and his pregnant wife, Naomi, waking up trapped by snow and ice in the car. And my chest tightened immediately. And my claustrophobia made me really anxious and I really didn't know if I was even going to finish watching this film because I, again, don't like to feel feelings and did not want to sit in that for the rest of the film's runtime, which is only 89 minutes. So I said, okay, buck up. You sat there buried. It was a phenomenal movie, even though you've never been able to watch it again, despite having Ryan Reynolds to like kind of quell your anxiety a little bit, but yeah. I was like, I could, I gave myself a pep talk. I want to watch this. I'm so curious how this plays out. 
Well, curiosity started to wane. I did a time check and I was at 26 minutes and I really did not know how this was not almost over. And that was from boredom, not from anxiety. I did another time check. It was only 34 minutes. Will I finish this? Because I just don't care at this point. The movie drags on and on. I check the time about every 10 minutes unknowingly. And the more the car froze, the more my heart froze. And I could not care less about their survival. I seriously had not been less uninvested in two characters' survival since Jack and Rose in the Titanic. Ooh. Sorry. I made some enemies with that one. Not a Titanic fan. The actors weren't necessarily bad. I do have to say that, but the characters are just not developed in any way for a film that is 89 minutes, mostly with two people trapped inside a car. I never cared about them in any way because they never gave me anything to care about them in any way other than that she was pregnant. And that's kind of like a cheap ploy. All Matt and Naomi do is argue and criticize each other. They never even really, like, panic that much, I felt like, for the urgency of their situation. I mean, I guess good on them for having survivalist instincts. I would have been flipping the fuck out. But all in all, my claustrophobia quickly waned after opening an immediate jump to day four. The pacing is terrible. I had to give this film one and a half out of five. I will never watch it again and am surprised that I watched it all the way through. I'm really glad I picked the next film as a palate cleanser because oof, I needed it. I watched the 2020 Kindred. When her boyfriend Ben suddenly dies in an accident, mother-to-be Charlotte collapses upon receiving the news. She wakes up in Ben's family home, a crumbling old manor in the middle of nowhere with Ben's overbearing mother and his controlling stepbrother who are determined to care for her. Grief-stricken and increasingly haunted by visions possibly brought on by the pregnancy, Charlotte begins to doubt the family's intentions and her suspicions grow that they may be trying to control her and her unborn baby. Oof. First off, pregnancy is terrifying. 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 I thought this film was a British get out meets Rosemary's baby minus the Satanism. The score is so, so, so unsettling. The directing is very calculated. The movie really hits on blackness, inheritance, maternal life, a woman's autonomy over her own body, generational trauma, loss, grief, class, stigma of mental illness, gaslighting, and society not hearing women, especially black women. One cannot ignore the statement that race is used to make in this film. This film actually made me, this film, I have to laugh at this at this note that I wrote down. This film actually made me feel consistently more claustrophobic than Centigrade did, and it was in a car the whole time. So Ben wanted to escape the controlling clutches of his family, but is never able to and ends up buried on the land, trapped eternally. Ugh. Ugh. Charlotte, played heartbreakingly by Tamara Lawrence, is held captive in the house after Ben's mother, played by the cruel Fiona Shaw, sells her house. 
And, you know, of course, there's this whole thing of, well, it's not really your house. It was Ben's, but, ugh. Like, your house was sold out from underneath you, and now you're forced to live with your terrible in-law without your partner there to buffer. That's a nightmare. And you're pregnant. And you didn't really know if you wanted to be pregnant. Oof. And your partner just died. Oof. So much heaviness. So Charlotte's mom has a history of mental illness. So Margaret, Ben's mother, and her stepson, Thomas, gaslight Charlotte and drug her and keep her hostage locked in a room and really manipulate all this history of mental illness. There's some powerful long shots presenting Charlotte small and closed in within the home that really reinforce that claustrophobia and isolation of her whole situation. Jack Loudon, as the stepson Thomas, really nails toxic masculinity, white privilege, and being a white savior, so eerily duplicitous. Tamara Lawrence never gives up as Charlotte, asserting for herself against all odds. Like, what a final girl, though. Spoiler alert, the ending is sad because Charlotte ends up in another type of confinement, locked in a different room, after you think she is free and rich white people have succeeded in stealing her baby from her. Spoiler alert over. My only, like, really pointed criticism is I really wonder what this film had been if a woman had written the script. That's just maybe my feminism showing, and that's okay, but it's just a very femme-centered story. I did give the film three out of five, and I kind of, like, you'll learn every week I don't really have a necessary plan other than maybe something that just came out that I was like desperate, desperate to rent. I don't get those in, but I'm kind of using the films that I watch to inform the other films that I watch. And that's how I came to this film from 2019, The Fanatic. Because I was just very on Devin Sawa and I was like, oh, you know what? I forgot that I hadn't watched that film. What's he doing? He did a great job in Hunter Hunter. <sighs> I had to take a breath for all the shade I'm getting ready to um, throw towards this film. Oh, oh, so many things. So, I, so the fanatic is about a rabbit film fan who stalks his favorite action hero and destroys the star's life. It stars Devin Sawa and John Travolta. And this is very important for you to know for context. It was directed and co-written by Limp Biscuit frontman Fred Durst. Because this context is so important. The first thing I said after I, I wrote after I watched this film. How did no one stop this film from happening? Yeah. Yeah. John Travolta does commit fully to his character, never in a mocking way. It's just very painful to watch since the villain in this is really mental illness. There's no real clear-cut hero or villain for you to attach to in the film. It's a very, very unsympathetic portrayal of someone who has mental illness or is on the spectrum or possibly even autistic. It is not identified, so I don't want to make any assumptions, but there is some mental illness or impairment in the character of Moose, portrayed by John Travolta. 
And our action star, played by Devin Sawa, known as Hunter, is a very complicated presentation. It initially is presented to be an unfortunate victim as he's a loving and dedicated father, desperate for privacy, but he's just downright hateful and mean. Why would you not notify authorities instead of just continuing to get madder and madder in an escalating situation? Oh, toxic masculinity. That's why. I, I do have to say, Devin Sawa does do the best with what he's given. Same with John Travolta. <laughs> Devin Sawa's finest acting moment in the film is probably when he convincingly puts on Limp Biscuit and not like, we're not talking Nookie and Break Stuff Air and Limp Biscuit, like more modern Limp Biscuit. Puts them on in the car and praises Limp Biscuit like repeatedly to his son. And it, but it wasn't even a hit though. And I like, I will go at some Limp Biscuit music. I'm not even gonna front. I know, I know it's not great. Um, this podcast is not about my musical choices, but yeah, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ship like that. Oh, Redemption is maybe. Maybe this film was intended to be a presentation of how cruel and unrelenting L.A. can be. I can't speak to that for sure. I don't know that I'm going to care to go watch any interviews with Fred Durst and what he was thinking. You know, I was very bothered by why Moose's best friend didn't get him help instead of just like putting him in a questionable situation and then seeing so many red flags and kind of not doing anything. And maybe that's the LA way. You just leave people alone. I don't know. I just, I had a lot of questions. Like I even at one point thought, did Nicolas Cage turn this down earlier in the film? I'm glad it didn't sully my sweets sweet Nicolas Cage in any way by doing this film. I feel like it could, the film could have made a better statement without Moose having any impairments. Just could, like, I could imagine the commentary on Rabid fandom starring the guy who played, to me, the original Rabid fan, Stan Davenzawa in Eminem's music video. Had to, like, I had to go there. I'm not really sure what I expected from someone whose band has a song named Hot Dog and they brag about saying fuck 46 times. I needed more character development for Moose and Hunter. The film just didn't care about that. And the ending for me was just beyond belief and had me wondering again what was the point of all of this and who should I have lined with? How should I feel after this film? I don't need a happy ending, but I need an ending. Well, the, the film had an ending, but I need, ha I, I don't know. I don't know. I had to give this a half a star out of five. Brutal, I know. But again, I, you know, very clearly asked why, but why did we make this film? I don't think it adds anything to anything in the world. I'm sorry, Devin Sawa. I love you, though. Then I jumped to another in one of my queues. I meant to watch this over the holiday season since it's set at Christmas and just ran out of time, but the 2015 Body. Body is about a night out turning deadly when three girls break into a seemingly empty mansion. I really liked the poster for this. It was very Hitchcockian. That's what drew me in. I actually don't have a whole, whole lot to say about this film because I actually, 
I didn't find as much in it for me to talk about it because it wasn't nearly as divisive as any of the other ones. So early on, the girls are playing Scrabble and they're like one of them. There was a little tease about Satan on the game and it led me to think, oh, foreshadowing? Am I going to get a little satanic element into it? No. Then there was a roadside encounter that seemed pretty ominous. So I was like, ooh, some retribution for not being a good neighbor. No. The plot was just as straightforward as the synopsis I read you. I have to say I wasn't a fan of how their panic so quickly turned into a very devious plot for self-preservation. In a world where women aren't believed for sexual assault, I feel very complicated about committing conspiracy to lie about a sexual assault. I think they could have done anything else with that. They didn't. They didn't need to lie about the guy trying to rape her. And and I think it went a little too far in what their whole story was. I think that was probably intentional. A little bit of shock value and it just... I don't like to be shocked for the sake of shock. The three leads are largely stereotypes with no more substance than being cliches. You have the charming manipulator, the moral compass, and the follower. It's a short runtime, which helps it maintain pace. The film is only 75 minutes, and it was able to hold my interest. The acting is good, surprisingly. I thought this was going to be like a Z-level film. The girls have a nice rapport. You're going to get more of a morality tale out of this than thriller or horror. There is some pretty good gore, but ugh. The lies that a group of girls can scheme to concoct at the expense of others really made the victim far more sympathetic to me. Maybe that was the point. Just little complicated feelings about that. I gave that one a 2 out of 5. Won't ever rewatch it again. No need. I don't think there's anything in it that will play better on a second time. Last up, I watched the 2019 The Mortuary Collection and the phantasmagorical town of Raven's End, a misguided young girl takes refuge in a decrepit old mortuary. The eccentric undertaker chronicles the strange history of the town through a series of twisted tales, each more terrifying than the last. But the young girl's world is unhinged when she discovers the final story, dot dot dot, is her own. And I do have to agree with the synopsis. The tales definitely do build one more terrifying than the last. It's definitely, to me, one of the more effective anthologies. I actually enjoyed this one more than Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Yes, it's more cohesive and embracing of the anthology format instead of throwing a bunch of stories around. The first story was more Lovecraftian than I thought this would be. I'm glad it was short. It was my least favorite, but the direction and effects were really great. The second story was my favorite, and this is the second time I've said this on this first episode. Maybe that is my feminism showing. It was a successful comeuppance and revenge on the opposite set. <laughs> it had a really funny marathon sex montage. The third story was very Tales from the Crypt revenge story for me about the things we do in desperation. You know, those stories that just as a kid I watched and made me never want to get married again because the only thing marriage ended in was murder, if you believe Tales from the Crypt and the third story. 
I appreciated at this point how the characters recur in the stories kind of innocuously. It's never forced. The fourth story presented by Sam really challenges Montgomery's morality tales that the bad guys get what they deserve. So I like this subversion. The film is a fun time traveling horror romp where nothing is forced and you get enough text and subtext about the period that they're in. The fourth story is just a very clever take on 80 slashers and the overdone babysitter tales. It had great gore, slick direction, it's very stylistic, and the wraparound tale, I do have to say, really lands mostly because of Clancy Brown. He's like a Vincent Price meets Crypt Keeper persona. I rated the Mortuary Collection as three and a half out of five stars. At the end of every episode, I'm going to do like a hot take and go over my must-sees if you want to, if you're desperate, and if you hate yourself. The last title may change, but right now that's where I am after the films that I watched this week. So I have to say, must-see of the 10 that I watched this week is Hunter Hunter. Hands down, must-see. So coming up under the should-sees, I have The Wretched, Kindred, and the Mortuary Collection, and The Last Exorcism. If you wanna, like if this film spoke to you in any way before, I would watch Spudnik, Rent-A-Pal. If you're desperate, I would watch Body. If you hate yourself, you can watch Centigrade or The Fanatic. This has been episode one of Woodsboro Happy Hour, and I have been your host, Ellie Quinn. Until next time, and hopefully next time I have a clever end phrase because I definitely thought I had something that I was kind of going to say loosely off the cuff and I, and I don't. So here's to a catchphrase. So next week I am signed up for a virtual screening of Promising Young Woman, which I have waited with bated breath since April of 2020 to see. So I am so very, very excited to finally watch this film. And I I know it's not maybe horror. I'm going to get into thrillers on this podcast too because the line can, can blur. But I'm definitely going to be talking a lot about that film, I know. So stay tuned.